Good morning, everyone. I just want to add my welcome. It's great to see you this morning. I'm so pleased you could join us. I, I grew up in a Christian home with my brother and sister, blessed with a caring mother and father. And our memories of dad as children were of a man who led by example. And most of the time he was patient, loving, kind. And yet there were times when he was firm. He, he would discipline us to teach us right from wrong. That didn't mean, of course, that we necessarily listened to him and, or even did what we were told. There were lots of places on a farmyard to have fun. Some of the barns we were allowed into, others we weren't. Not, of course, that necessarily stopped us. And one of the forbidden areas was where the fertiliser bags were stored. Back then, fertilizers, fertiliser was bagged in smooth plastic bags. It took a, a reasonably strong person to be able to lift one by themselves. But despite the warnings, my brother and I quite often just enjoyed going in there into the fertiliser barn to climb up and over the bikes. Probably because it was dangerous. One particular day, I was probably eight, maybe nine years old at the time, and I, I began to climb up a stack of bags and, and they began to slip and I fell to the ground and about five, six bags fell on top of me and pinned to the ground. And Colin, Colin tries to move them, but he can't. And I can remember being trapped. Unable to move, I was struggling to breathe with the, the weight pressing on my chest and thankfully my head and mouth wasn't covered. Colin had no option but to go and run and get Dad. Leaving me scared, fearful, gasping for air and with all sorts of thoughts just running through my mind. And I knew I, knew I shouldn't have been in there so as well as this fear of being crushed I, I also... I was also fearful of Dad. What's he going to say? But the fear I had of my father was a very different type of fear. Yes, there was that feeling of dread, but it was mainly disappointment in myself. Disappointment that I'd messed up, that I hadn't listened. You see, I wasn't afraid of being punished. He, he rarely even raised his voice. He didn't have to. I had a respect for him, a love for him that meant that I wanted to do my best for him. And Dad came sprinting to the barn that day. He, he picked up the bags very easily. He removed them off my body. I was, I was free. And, and as, I looked, as I looked him in the eye, there wasn't even a hint of anger, only concern and love. The love that only a father has for his son. <laughs> I could tell you other stories. The day I burst the car tyre by taking the corner too fast around the side of the house. Shouldn't even have been driving, probably. Or the day I, I, I uh, stuck a pitchfork into the back tyre of the tractor. Another expensive mistake. And each and every time my father showed more grace than I deserved. Don't get me wrong, he, he wasn't perfect. There were times when he got angry. There's times when he was extremely frustrated. Who wouldn't be? But over the years, as I grew up to be a man, I developed an admiration and a respect for him. So why do I tell you this? 
I tell you this because the respect and admiration for a good earthly father is possibly the best analogy that I have for God our Father. But you still need to understand that it's a faulty picture that is flawed in so many ways because even the respect and admiration for the best of earthly fathers will never do justice to the awe, respect and fear that God deserves. Yes, fear. You see, time and again we are told in Scripture to fear the Lord. Psalm 112 verse 1. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Proverbs 10 verse 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Psalm 33 verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. And of course we could go on. The truth is, it's very difficult to describe and understand what it really means to fear God. See, there was a time in, in years gone by when committed Christians would be called God-fearing people. But today, the, the idea of fearing God mostly brings questions and maybe looks of, of confusion and, and the thought that this phrase is simply irrelevant. It's perhaps because the word fear is only ever used to describe something that is scary or that would terrify us. However, the fear of God is, is so much more than that. But I'm convinced that since we have stopped talking about fearing God, the church has lost an understanding of God that it needs to recover. I'm very aware that this idea of fearing God may be something that's new to you. After all, I'm sure you've heard many sermons on the grace of God or the love and the mercy of God. But how many sermons have you heard on the fear of the Lord. It's rare, if at all. So why, why do we shy away from talking about fearing God? After all, it does not alter the fact that God is a God of grace and love and mercy. That's who he is. And I've, I've personally been reflecting on this and challenged by it, wondering do we preach the word of God in its entirety or, or, or do we tell people what they want to hear most of the time? And so much of preaching today only presents God as love, which of course is one attribute of his character. But, but if that is all we talk about, do we not rob him of his power, of his deity and I'm concerned that our churches, never mind our communities, have become places where, as, as it says in Genesis chapter 20, verse 11, there is surely no fear of God in this place. Or in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I was watching The Simpsons this week. Don't judge me for it. <laughs> but the, the episode that I was watching was about a trendy young youth pastor who came to take over the church where, in Springfield where the Reverend Lovejoy was. 
And this new pastor was portrayed as a compassionate, forward-thinking Christian. He was open to new ideas, accepting of other religions, happy even to question the existence of God. He had no respect for scripture, but was very comfortable quoting verses that talked about love and forgiveness. While thinking the rest of the Bible was just outdated and unhelpful at times. And the main, the main thrust of this episode was, was that all a pastor had to do to fill his empty church was, was to embrace the message that God does not judge anyone. And as I watched, I became more and more uncomfortable because this piece of animation was just felt too close to reality. This cartoon painfully highlighted how far society and even church had fallen from what is clearly laid out in scripture. And I was left thinking, where is the fear of God in our nation? A nation that has forgotten God. In the 1600s, Stephen Charnock wrote some discourses on the attributes of God that are just a, they're a gold mine. If you get your hands on them, they will feed your soul. In the first chapter, he begins by expounding Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, which says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Charnock describes three kinds of atheism. The first is absolute atheism that denies the existence of God altogether. The second, providential atheism that, that confines God to heaven and, and separates him from the things of earth. But there's a third kind, a natural, a functional atheism that denies the nature and the attributes of God in Scripture. And this third form is, is probably the most subtle type, but it's also the most common. And it is, I guess, graphically reflected in the Simpsons episode that I just mentioned a few minutes before. You see, there are many people in our nation and even in our churches who confess that there is a God, but they deny the fullness of his character as described in his words. See, if we claim to believe God and, and you do not worship him or do not honour him or fear him, you live like a functional atheist. God becomes an add-on, an occasional thought, but as Karnak writes, a God forgotten is as good as no God to us. The state of the Christian church today is reaching a desperate position because it has lost the fear of God. We have forgotten who he is. We, 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 don't, we don't take time to we don't take time, the time that we should, to read his word and to establish the truth of his attributes and character. So we live like functional atheists. It's very possible to have an atheistic heart without an atheistic head. So even though 
even though I'm sure most of you would would never doubt the existence of God and, and you would even take time to to defend him. It is very possible to have a heart that still is empty of affection towards him. Where sin dominates your desires, not Christ, where our affections are more about rebellion, not obedience. Gee, from the very first man down to you and me today, we all look after number one. And if we're honest, pride dominates most of our lives. It, it, it may have been Adam and Eve who believed the lie of Satan because they wanted power. They wanted to be like God. But the truth is we want to be in control of our own lives like little gods in control of our own world because it's all about me. You just need to put the TV on and watch two minutes of adverse to be told that in order to be happy, we need to have more sex. We need to drink the right beer. We need to be wearing the right deodorant or earning more money. But more is never enough. See, at best, all these things bring is some temporary happiness and then they destroy our joy. Yet I often... How often do we choose to put ourselves before God? How often do we choose sin over obedience? See, when we live life as if we know better than God, we forget about him. And yet, you see, trying harder is, is, is not the answer. We need his spirit. We need his word to, um, in our lives to direct us. We need to be depending on him to be enjoying him. We need a right understanding of God, a fear of God, because it's the knowledge of God that brings the right fear and, and repentance to sinful man. God deserves your highest praise. He deserves your highest esteem. But in but the natural state of our hearts, our sinful state, we attempt to reverse this. We, we attempt to put ourselves in charge. And in doing so, we reduce God to a manageable size, a small God who, in our minds, can be satisfied with a small amount of obedience and a small amount of holiness. And, and we make God a creature, not the creator. This needs to change. And to do this, we, we, we need to meet the God of the Bible, the one true God, the only God. As, as, as A.W. Pink puts it, we need to become aware of the all-inspiring and worship-provoking grandeur of the divine character of God. A God who is great in wisdom, wondrous in power, yet full of mercy. Exodus 15 verse 11 asks the question we should be asking ourselves. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? He is worthy of all our worship. That's why John Murray wrote The Fear of God, in which Godliness consists is the fear which constrains, powerfully produces adoration and love. 
it is the fear which consists in awe, reverence, honour and worship. And all of these on the highest level of exercise, it is the reflex of our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. Jerry Bridges in his book entitled The Joy of Fearing God, which I guess was, I get birthed some of these sermons. He describes the fear of God as reverential awe. It's the kind of fear that, 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 that goes way beyond simply being afraid of God, which I attempted to illustrate in the story I told about my dad. And this kind of fear produces a sense of gladness and the response of adoration, of love, of honour, of worship. Because it speaks not only of God's transcendent majesty and holiness, it, it, it is also his amazing grace, his unfathomable love for us in Christ Jesus. That's why we stand in awe of God, not just because of his incomparable splendour and absolute purity, but also because of his grace and his mercy towards us. However, when we deny his splendour and holiness, we no longer fear him and we cheapen God's grace. Take a walk with me for a moment. Imagine, imagine you're climbing Snowdon, the second highest mountain in the UK, and you make it you make it halfway up and the weather begins to close in and the visibility has dropped. Not unusual, of course. So you decide to carry on. You eventually make it to the top, but by now the weather has become much worse. You can barely see the hand in, in front of your face and the wind, well the wind now is so strong that you're, you're scared to even stand up straight. And you're frightened that you're going to be blown off the side of that mountain to your death. Such is the intensity of the wind. In that moment, you're both amazed at the overwhelming power of the wind, but you also feel fear, a real sense of awe at its danger. However, somehow you manage to slowly make your way back down the mountain again. You keep yourself low. It's more of a crawl than a walk. And, and when you finally get to safety, you reflect on your near-death experience and, and your thoughts turn to the hand of God behind the strong wind. You ponder his mighty power and the visible, tangible manifestation that you've experienced on that mountainside. But now your sense of awe is, is no longer focused on the wind, but on God. And your awe becomes a reverential awe. A mixture of fear, of wonder, of admiration and respect. So am I saying that even Christians should be afraid of God? After all, haven't we been delivered from 
I've made you delivered from the prospect of God's wrath. Doesn't perfect love drive out all fear? And, and scripture tells us that God is our place of refuge because of his grace and mercy. And we rightly emphasise the amazing grace of the gospel. God really does see you as righteous in Christ. You have been delivered from the ultimate wrath of God and he will never judge true believers for their sin. Your sin has been forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. On the cross, the blood of Christ has cleansed you from all of your sins, past, present and future. Your salvation is secure in Christ. But do we really understand the unconditional love of God? It does not mean that God will not discipline you if you persist in your unrepentant attitude towards sin. God, God doesn't turn a blind eye to your deliberate persistent sinfulness. And I, I want to emphasise that God will discipline those who live with an unrepentant and irreverent attitude. We need to take seriously the call of God to walk in obedience. So we can't just dismiss stories like Uzzah who was struck by the Lord for, for touching the ark of God in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Or the tragic story of Ananias and Sapphira who died for lying to the apostles and to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. Has God changed? Does his judgment only happen in biblical times? Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not talking about someone who is wrestling with sin and, and fails in their sincere struggle with it. See, there's a vast difference between someone who is struggling to put away sin and an attitude of a person who says, I know it's sin, but God will forgive me anyway. In Hebrews 19, 29, we are warned that God is a consuming fire and we are told to worship him with reverence and awe. The Apostle Paul agrees and he urges us to consider both the kindness and the severity of God in Romans chapter 11 verse 22. The very goodness of God leads us to a proper fear of him. The truth is God is definitely not safe. Last year we went to Nosley Safari Park. The highlight for me was the lion enclosure. When you get there, there are just big signs everywhere reminding you not to get out of your car. The lions, they're just lying there, they're resting half asleep under a tree. Yet despite their placid appearance, it, it wasn't hard to imagine the fear and the dread that you would feel if you came across one of these magnificent cats in the grasslands of Africa. See, even, even with the big fences and the, the deep ditches to keep you safe, deep down you know that you need to be cautious. You know you need to have a respect, a healthy fear of how potentially dangerous they could be. Perhaps one of the best pictures and illustrations is found in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. One of the children asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan the lion. Is he quite safe? 
I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We should fear God, honour and worship him simply because he is God. So how, how do we even begin to describe him? And as we continue to explore this question of who God is and what it means to fear God, we must acknowledge the challenge because in, in one sense it is, it's an impossible question to answer. So there are more sermons to come on this question. But for now, let me try and just pull together this morning's thoughts and discussions with one description of God found in John chapter 4 and verse 24. John writes, God is spirit. The, the whole verse reads, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And I feel a need to dispel one myth about God. God is not like you. He's not like you. He has no body. He is spirit. In Genesis, we're told that man was made in the image of God. However, being made in the likeness of God does not refer to our physical bodies, but to our spirits. And we need to understand that God is creator and he is much greater than anything he created. He exceeds us in every way. Charnock writes, it's probably easier to say what God is not like. The truth is, we find it actually very difficult to understand how something can exist without it being made up of something else. So when God tells us he is spirit, we need to understand that he's saying that he is not like us in any way. And he's also unlike any angel or any spiritual being. He is infinitely higher than any of his creation. He is the supreme divine spirit and he is the source of all creation. Nothing exists without him. Nothing continues to exist or to be sustained without him. He is king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. First Timothy 1.17 But he is not only invisible, he is also incomprehensible to our understanding. However, there are many verses in the Bible that we could give that refer to God as having body parts. So there's references to his heart, arms, eyes, ears. In Genesis, sorry, in Exodus 33, when God appears to Moses, Moses saw 
a glimpse of the glory of God. Yet he was told by God, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. So why does God say you cannot see my face? Well, when it's very clear in scripture that God has no physical face. You see, it's, it's because God is so much greater than our understanding. And this, this, the scripture uses terms that we are familiar with just to help us to understand God. We see a similar example in Psalm 91, when the writer refers to God covering us with his feathers, being under his wing. Now, I don't think any of us think for a moment that God is a bird. Yet this metaphor brings us closer in understanding someone who is beyond our understanding. It also expresses God's visible outworking in the world today. But it does not describe his invisible nature. This is not a description of what God looks like. He is incomprehensible to your understanding. My point is this. God is so much greater, so much more majestic, so much more powerful than any notion or any image that we have of him. Nothing can compare to him. So any object, any visual imagery that we use to represent him is nothing less than idolatry and foolishness. You and I need to elevate our view of God. And the higher our view of him, the more we humbly bow down before him in worship. And no matter how great your fear and reverence and awe of God is, he is still so much greater. He is infinite. He has no boundaries. He has no limitations. Second Chronicles 2 verse 6, we are reminded that the, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. He's not limited by time and space. And he is not dependent on anything or anyone, which is why in Isaiah 44 verse 6, God declares, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. He is unchanging. I, the Lord, do not change, he says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. He cannot change for the better because he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Arthur Pink writes, His power can never diminish, nor his glory ever fade. God is forever the same. His purposes are fixed. He is stable and his words are sure. He is omnipresent. In Jeremiah 23 verse 24, God challenges the nation of Israel and asks them the question, who can hide in the secret place so that they cannot so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I live, do not I fill heaven and earth. Not only does his power and his authority fill all of heaven and earth, but his very essence, his very being fills every place. There is no place without him. He is everywhere. And when he says he is present in one place, it doesn't mean that he is somehow absent from somewhere else. And just as no place exists 
without God, no place can contain him. I hope, I hope you're beginning to get a glimpse of who God is. I hope you realise that no words will ever do him justice or fully describe him. And when we reflect on his infinite majesty, power, authority, omniscience and holiness. When we seek to understand the glorious and, and powerful nature of God, the more the more we will humble ourselves in his presence, the more we will bow in awe and fear of him, the more we will be overwhelmed by the realisation of God's glorious splendour. And the more you will worship and adore him. He is worthy. He alone is worthy of all your trust now and forever. Let's pray to him. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We give you glory. We give you honour this morning. And Lord, we pray, simple prayer, change our hearts that we may love you more change our minds our hearts our everything that we may worship and adore you may we be in awe of you Holy Spirit come do a deep work within us Take away those earthly, sinful mindsets that diminish your holiness, that diminish your majesty, and fill us with an understanding of you that gives you glory, that exalts you, that brings us to a place of worship and adoration on bended knee.